Charles Worrell, give me a name. Tico Brahe. Welcome to Give Me a Name, where a guest presents me, Ben Kirschenbaum, with a dead historical figure they find interesting, and we discuss. You're going to enjoy this one, so sit back, relax, and if you have to pee, do it now. Trust me, it'll make sense in a minute. I'm here today, remotely, with Mr. Charles Worrell, who was my ninth grade geometry teacher, and just a little bit of our personal history from my perspective. In eighth grade, I took a honors math course, and I was really struggling with it. I was able to get by largely with the help of my cousin, Mark, who tutored me, and I was debating whether or not to take the honors class in ninth grade. I decided why not. I could always drop out, and Mr. Worrell was my teacher and completely changed my interest in math, and I went on to study it in college, and that is largely thanks to the person I'm talking to today. So that is my introduction to Mr. Charles Worrell. He is a teacher at Horace Mann, still teaching math, and I'm not sure geometry, and I assume some other branches as well. Yeah, yeah, I'm still teaching that geometry class, and those are such nice things to say. Ben, I, I really appreciate it. And I, I will say that you were, you were Benji when you were in my class, and I'm probably going to call you Benji the whole time, which might sound a little weird to other people, but I really appreciate that. And I do teach geometry classes still and really enjoy it, and I teach all the high school classes. And speaking of names, I might slip into calling you Mr. Worrell. It's too weird to call my ninth grade geometry teacher by his first name. It's, I, I mean, it, as of a week ago, I knew for the first time that your first name was Charles. I had no idea. I mean, you're just Mr. <laughs> Worrell. So it's, <laughs> I'm probably going to slip into it. That's fine. I've got lots of experience with that. So let's talk Tycho Brahe. He was a 16th century astronomer, although when we say astronomer or scientist, it might mean very different things than what you would associate with a modern scientist because he was super into astrology and religion and alchemy. And mm -hmm. we talk of this time called the scientific revolution, which is usually dated to when Copernicus revitalizes the heliocentric theory in 1543, the year that he actually died. And Copernicus was a Polish astronomer who didn't invent the idea that all the planets revolve around the sun, but he kind of put it back in vogue, at least a little bit. A lot of people didn't really buy it. But this period for the next few hundred years after that is called the scientific revolution. Although a lot of people say, well, it wasn't really a scientific revolution because all these guys still believed in a lot of stuff that we wouldn't call science. Yeah, the, there's a lot of sort of pseudoscience mixed up in there. And Tycho was uh, notable for having been more scientific, actually, than almost anybody before him. But to our ears, some of the stories about him sound like he was, like he was a mystic as well. But, but he really was considered to be remarkably and newly scientific. He was born on December 14th, 1546 in, at the time it was Denmark, but now it's actually Sweden. And one thing to know about him right away, super rich. Yeah, his whole family was super rich. And I, I you know, I personally became interested in Tico many years ago when I was a freshman in college. Actually, excuse me, I was a senior in college. I took kind of randomly an astronomy course by a professor named James Vogel. And he told great stories. It was a history of science class about cosmology and the history of, of uh, how human beings have thought about the creation of the universe and the cosmos. And when he came to Tycho, he had all these amazing stories about him. 
one of the most colorful characters, and we could definitely go over some of the fascinating stories just surrounding his life, not even involving astronomy at all. One which happens when he's about two or three years old is that he's essentially kidnapped by his uncle. Yeah, I didn't really understand that part of the story. <laughs> There's a lot of history about Tico that is lost because there wasn't a lot of record that was made of it. It was mostly letters and things like that. And I, and I, I lost my train of thought a moment ago. I was going to say that one of the things I love about his family history is that he's very closely related to Rosencrantz's and Guildenstern's, which I had no idea was an actual you know set of families in Denmark. But um, And this actually did, his life took place just before Shakespeare wrote Hamlet. So, so these were real people. But he was, yeah, apparently like kidnapped or given away or something like that and raised by his uncle. That's true. Also speaking of family, according to Wikipedia, no idea if this is true, a distant, distant relative of Dame Judi Dench. <laughs> I didn't see that. Okay. <laughs> well, she probably is related to lots of, you know. Yeah, aren't we all? Aristocratic yeah. people. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and Tico Brahe's connection with the play Hamlet is kind of a whole branch of study on its own. Rosencrantz really? and Guildenstern, two of the characters in Hamlet, they are Hamlet's he thinks they're his friends at first, but they're actually working for the king. So one thing, there's a guy who wrote the whole article about the connection between the play Hamlet and Tycho Brahe's life, and how Hamlet is actually a whole metaphor for Shakespeare espousing the heliocentric theory versus Tycho Brahe's theory. One thing that he points out, there's like a bunch of these different quotes that he pulls out or whatever, but Claudius Ptolemy was the full name of Ptolemy, who was the geocentric, the main guy for the geocentric theory, the idea that the earth is in the center and everything, including the sun, revolves around it. So Claudius is also the king in Hamlet, who Hamlet is trying to kill. He's the, if you're going to use the Lion King, you know, which is basically just Hamlet, he's Scar. Yeah. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I had no idea about that. Okay. (laughs) I think it might be one of these things where some guy saw a few quotes and he was like, this is just, you know, I think it's very much like a Da Vinci Code (laughs) type. Sure, sure. It's funny, though. (laughs) So Tico Brahe kind of kidnapped by his uncle who had no heirs and was, seems like the parents were kind of okay with it. Well, it actually turns out that 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 was uh, an important part of who he was because his other, the other part of his family with his actual parents his other brothers and sisters became just sort of normal aristocrats. And uh, Tico, being on that other side of the family, was actually encouraged or at least allowed to to become more interested in sort of intellectual interests of the time. And, and so it's my understanding that that actually turned out to be kind of lucky in a way, including because apparently his uncle saved the life of the king of Denmark at one point. And because I guess the story is that the king of Denmark was drinking one night and fell drunk into the Copenhagen waterway system and presumably would have drowned, except that Tico's uncle jumped in and saved him. And the king was really, really nice to Tico later on. And who knows if that was the reason why, but it definitely could have been. For sure. So Frederick II, who is going to be Tico's biggest sponsor, not only, I mean, the most famous thing that he does and the most important thing is that he literally gives Tico Brahe his own island, which will end up being one of the main reasons why we remember the name Tico Brahe. There's another connection that I learned between Frederick II and Tico is that 
Tico Brahi married a commoner, which was yes. a, big, a big deal and actually like somewhat illegal. But they had this marriage arrangement where they're eventually allowed to get married. Part of the deal with the Danish law at the time is that their kids are not noblemen and women. They, they are no. just commoners. The reason yeah. why I med- mention it in relation to Frederick II is that Frederick II was also in love with a, a person not of noble birth. And he actually didn't marry her. He had to, it was, it was just too scandalous. So I read another theory that said that one reason why Frederick related in some way to Tico is that they both had these forbidden loves. Well, and it's also funny because, you know, social mores change over time, but apparently the king, King Frederick, actually had to marry a more, you know, socially acceptable person who was his niece. He married his niece. And that was, and that was because it was more socially acceptable, which, you know, times change. Yeah. No, you got to marry your niece just for the for the PR, for the yeah, <laughs> all right, fine. But I love the commoner lady. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm married. I'm, I'm I'm cool. I married my niece. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and and I don't know if this actually is that important, but it was kind of funny in in researching some of this. I found out that Tico's wife's name was Kirsten, but her last name was Jorgen's daughter. Which, when you look at it written out, it doesn't you know look like Jorgen's daughter. But I realized after reading a couple of times times that's that's actually what it was so that was her name Jorgen's daughter and her father was named Jorgen well sure (laughs) yeah it would be weird if that was the name and the dad was just named Phil or whatever yeah yeah I guess so (laughs) so when Tico is 12 years old he goes to the University of Copenhagen which I think was pretty normal at the time to go that early and one seminal moment that's reported in Tico's childhood is that he sees this solar eclipse yeah he was pretty excited about that. And he was excited about a lot of aspects of it. One was the eclipse itself, and also was just the idea that it could be predictable, and also that it wasn't actually accurately predicted. It was off by about a day or something like that. And he was struck by that as well. And also he was struck by the implications, the the astrological implications. He was very excited about using these kinds of events to predict the future, and he wanted to study that as well. And everyone's involved in the predicting the future aspect. Frederick II included leaders and stuff. They see all of these phenomenon in the cosmos and they're like, well, what does this mean about, you know, are we going to war? And astrology and astronomy are not separate fields by any means in this time period. No, I agree. That's right. So in 1563, he continues to kind of observe these things. There's a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. He's building up his interest in astronomy. And as you said, particularly really important to note that with the solar eclipse, he is gripped by the fact that you could predict it, but maybe even more importantly, that it's not that accurate. And he realizes that we need to get some more accurate data. Yeah. He very early on starts thinking about how to design observational equipment that would be better. And he's got lots of money. And he starts to commission the building of new, new devices, and it, specifically in order to increase the accuracy of predicting various events. In 1566, one of the, I was going to say fun stories, I guess it's not that fun, but it's definitely a colorful story of Tico's life. He, his nose. Loses, he loses his nose. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, what I know about that is that 
he had become this, he's 20 years old, and he is making a transition from being a student to being an adult. And he's thinking seriously about becoming an, an astronomer slash, slash astrologer, as you said, there really wasn't a difference. And he's having lots of conversations with people about the stars and the motions of the planets. And he ends up getting into this, this situation where he makes a prediction based on a, a different eclipse, actually, than the one that you cited. And he makes this prediction that some ruler in Arabia somewhere is going to die because of it. And it's kind of like a big deal. He's like, oh, I, I see in the stars, this is going to happen. And then it turns out because of the time delay in finding out any information about things happening, you know, hundreds of miles away, it comes out a little bit later that that ruler died six weeks before the eclipse that he used to predict it. And it was embarrassing. He was like, oh, oops. And people made fun of him apparently. And there was this one guy I believe I'll I've got it here, uh, Mandarip Parsberg, yeah, also yeah. his third cousin. Yeah, and so they get into this thing where they are you know, insulting each other, and at some point it just gets really heated, and they go outside, and apparently everybody at the time, all the nobles at the time, had swords. And <laughs> they went out there, and they did something that a lot of noblemen at the time did. They got mad, and they started like swinging the swords around. They had a duel. And it was pretty quick. And I've, I've read that at the time, the most common swords used were broadswords rather than rapiers, which means that most of the injuries at this time were more about being hacked than stabbed, which probably means that Tico, if he had been around, say, 20 years later doing this, when rapiers were more in style, might have actually died. But instead, he just had his nose cut off. And so for, from that point on, for the rest of his life, he um, it, it obviously didn't grow back. He, because he was rich, he had uh, special ornamental metal noses made, and he had a little leather strap that went around the back of his head, and he wore it like a, like a modern day, uh, you know, surgical mask. And he had jewel encrusted ones and golden ones that he'd wear on special occasions. Weird story, but you can see in the portraits of him because he was world famous for much of his life. There were portraits made of him. You can see the the strap and the nose. I think one of my favorite parts of it is that he generally, we find out hundreds of years later that he generally wore a brass nose. But as you said, there were noses for more formal occasions. Like when he would get super dressed up for a black tie event or whatever, he would put on the silver nose or the gold nose. Right, and we'll get into the details of this later, but, but there was some intrigue about how he died. And apparently there were these theories that cropped up over the decades that maybe he was murdered and apparently in 1901, his body was exhumed in order to check to see what kinds of traces of metal were found in his nasal cavity area to see what kind of nose he had. And it turned out, yeah, it was copper at the time. Uh, and then in 2010, apparently, they exhumed his body a second time to test to see some things about how he died. And they also figured out that he had a lot of other traces of metals near his face that probably had to do with his nose as well. And the death stuff is, yeah, we could get into it a little bit later, but <laughs> the story of Tico's life is only rivaled by the story of Tico's death. So just a little preview for what's coming in a bit. Yeah, yeah, he was a colorful character, no doubt about it. In 1572, Tico makes what might be the biggest discovery of his career. And he finds a new star, which he calls a nova. And of course, that word is still used, or supernova. It turns out that what he found was a supernova, which he didn't realize. He thought it was a new star. What it really probably was was a star dying. 
he wasn't sure what it was, but he was making some very accurate measurements at this point, and he was excited to try to figure out where the star was. That was a big deal because Aristotelian physics, which was, and, and cosmology, were the way that everybody of the time in Europe interpreted how the heavens were actually set up. And in that system, there shouldn't have been any sort of like new, changeable sort of astronomical phenomena that was above the level of the moon. There were sort of these three layers above um, our atmosphere. And one was sort of the level of the moon, and there was before that, and there was after that. And there shouldn't have been, according to Aristotle, any changeable thing happen uh, above the level of the moon. So when this new event happened, a new star came, Tycho wanted to know where it was, how far away it was. And he used a geometrical technique called parallax, where he could figure out based on measurements at different times how angles were changing and get a rough approximation for how far away this object was. And he judged there was no parallax, which means that this object was at least as far away as the stars, which shouldn't have been possible in the ways that people understood how the heavens were set up. This was revolutionary. And he becomes famous from it. People realize just how big this is. Yeah, absolutely. And he decides also that this is such a big deal that he wants to keep studying this. This is part of the reason why he continues in the direction of astronomy. He helps out in the coming years, King Frederick II, in terms of recruiting certain artisans and artists for the Danish kingdom. And again, we talked a little bit about how he and Frederick had a nice relationship. In the late 1570s, Frederick is like, all right, I got I, I to gotta reward you. I'm going to give you a great castle. I'm going to give you all the stuff that you want. And Tycho doesn't really care. What he wants to do is, as you said, study more astronomy slash astrology. But then in 1576, Frederick makes Tycho kind of an offer that he can't refuse. Yeah, Tycho was actually considering emigrating at this point, which was a big deal because his family is so tied up. I mean, when we say he was a nobleman, uh, he was a high nobleman. He was in a family that was, I don't know, one of the 50 families that were the most important ones. And they were always, they were always in conversations with the king and they really were Denmark. And for him to be contemplating leaving Denmark was a big deal. And it was all about his wanting to build his life around astronomical observations, which wasn't really, it wasn't the accepted thing. And so he thought, okay, I'm gonna have to go to Germany and go to one of the universities there. And you're right, the king found out about this. And really, it seems that he gave this island, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's, it's H-V-E-N, Venn Island, maybe. I've watched a couple of videos and listened to a couple of podcasts. I think Ven, I think there's, a, it's H-V-E-N, but I don't think, yeah. I think the H is kind of silent, I believe. I think that's right. I think that's right. So he's given this island, which is about four or five square miles. It's out in the middle of the body of water between Denmark, which is on the you know, mainland of Northern Europe, and then between that and between Sweden to the east. And it's just kind of out in the middle of this big bay. And it's very near Copenhagen, um, maybe 10 miles away, but it's, it's probably five miles away from the shore. And it's kind of looks like this idyllic island in the middle of the ocean where, where he's allowed to build this observatory. And there is actually an indigenous population of Danish there who are sort of, the politics of the time are weird, but you know they basically are semi-serfs. I mean, they're free, but they are required to work for the 
ruler of the island who is Tico. And Tico decides to build all of this crazy stuff on the island to create an observatory. And they have to do all the labor. Yeah, he becomes sort of a mini autocrat. I mean, it's a small island, but they all sort of work for him in a pretty unfair way. I also read that they weren't allowed to leave without Tico's permission. Yeah, there's all kinds of laws about that. They can also, I mean, they have some freedom and some ability to use the law to claim that Tico's, you know, overreaching, and they occasionally do that over time, especially towards the end of his time there uh, in the mid-1590s. But at first, Tico, as you said, it doesn't seem like he was so worried about money and about prestige. But that said, he used his money and prestige to press really hard to get exactly what he wanted when he wanted it to be built. And so it took four years of really intense labor, but they built this incredibly articulated, fancy castle for him that had all kinds of crazy turrets and observational towers and and huge weird devices to look at the stars and lots of like filigree pretty stuff all over the place and you know I was trying to think about as I was I was looking at some of the pictures where have I seen things like this in movies and things and you know when I was a kid there was a really bad movie called The Dark Crystal it was Jim Henson he who did you know all the Muppet stuff and he had this movie from the early 80s that was really not good but it had a world that was this kind of fanciful world that looked a lot like early Renaissance Denmark. And there was this castle in it, and it had all of this crazy astrological equipment that they built for the movie set. And I went back and Googled it uh, when I was researching for this and watched, and yeah, there totally are these crazy scenes in a castle that looks like Tico's Island. And he names the castle Uraniborg, which is named after Uranus. And there's something about, I don't even know why he did it, but it was something about astrology. Though I do find it funny that later on his story is going to end because he dies, I'll give it away, he dies because of a, a urinary problem and he named his place Uraniborg. And it, anyway. He might've seen something coming. Other thing I'm going to say about Venn, which the island, this is the last thing I'm going to say about Hamlet, but Venn, very close to where Hamlet takes place. So, He's building all these incredible things, sextants and quadrants. And one thing to note, this is just before telescopes. Yeah, the first telescopes were in 1609. And if Tycho Tycho died in 1601, if Tycho had lived another 10 or 15 years, which he, he really could have, he only died at 57, I think he would have been amazed and excited. It's kind of, in a way, sad. But he built, as you said, he built a lot of devices. He also designed them. He invented them. And you can pretty much consider him the last great astronomer pre-telescopes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Galileo changed everything. He has this big castle mansion, Uraniborg, in Venn. And in addition to all of these incredible devices, he recruits people. Yes, he needs people to be there for a very particular reason. He decides that... He's going to use all of these devices he's got to get the most accurate and voluminous body of measurements that has ever existed. He starts taking nightly measurements that require, I mean, these these devices are enormous. Some of them are 50 feet tall and require three or four people to operate, and he needs labor, relatively skilled labor. And so he basically recruits young nobles 
who have also gone through a lot of the education he did where they had to learn some astronomy. They come, they work for two or three years for him. It sounds like he was a bit of a taskmaster. And then they'd sort of, you know, work there for a little while, get some prestige out of that, and then leave. And so there were dozens of people, maybe even at times more than dozens, who were working for him at all times. And they were, it was 24-7. And he wasn't the first person to invent this idea of a just community of study. One thing that I was reading called it kind of a familia in a weird way. You can go back all the way to the Library of Alexandria back in ancient times. So he didn't create this concept, but it is revolutionary in a certain sense of just get a lot of smart people together, get a lot of cool gadgets together and see what we get. Yeah, it does seem like though he had, it doesn't seem like most of his students were there for their intellectual abilities. He was in charge. And he had all of his ideas and he wanted them to do a lot of the labor. And it wasn't just physical labor. Some of it was about making computations, taking the measurements and then turning them into using the spherical trigonometry of the time, which was really complicated mathematics, using it to take the raw data and turn it into actual measurements on a star map and then putting those measurements onto all kinds of maps that he had and then physical objects uh, as well. It's hard to overstate how ostentatious his devices were and how beautiful the objects were that he was making. Uh, He spared no expense. It's really expensive stuff. And he had this globe that took 25 years to be completed. And it was about six feet in diameter. It was first made out of wood, but then he had it covered in like silver plate and iron, and it just got more and more complicated. It had pictures of stars all over it, and it was like it was a globe of the sky is what it was supposed to be. And it was just an example of one of the things that was so beautiful in the place. His assistants didn't design these things. They were sort of the manual labor. And it's just a great example of for science, particularly experimental science. And that's what Tico is. He's an experimental scientist. He's an observer, an empiricist. It's tedious stuff. Yeah. And there's all kinds of examples over these 20 years or so. He built the observatories from about 1576 to about 1580 or so. And then for the next 20 years until the late 1590s, he was there. And for that 20-year stretch, and even really before that, they were getting data. They were getting data every single night and as often as they could. And he was using it to draw conclusions about lots of things, but he is absolutely striking in the history of science as somebody who was using the data and he was really reacting to it. When something was a little bit off, I mean, he was looking for the kind of accuracy that was like, he wanted one minute of accuracy and a, a minute is one sixtieth of a degree. And if you think about how small a, a measurement that is, given that he was using such you know, rudimentary methods from you know, a modern standpoint, he had all of this really, really careful data. And when he found things that didn't quite work uh, in terms of his theories, he reacted to it in a way that's very modern. Say, okay, these measurements are saying that the models that I have, the intellectual models I have, aren't quite right. And he didn't always do this, but but he often adjusted his theory to match the data. And that's very modern. I think I saw different numbers on this, but mapped the positions of essentially a thousand stars. Unprecedented. Yeah, it was a big task. And I think that Tycho had set himself up 
with the number 1000 and he struggled. He ended up something in the seven or eight hundreds and it really was hard for him to get up to a thousand. So he had kind of bitten off a little more than he could chew actually. The other thing we should mention about this island is the partying and just the wild stuff that would go on there. He wasn't, it seems like at first he wasn't that interested in the social aspect of being a noble, but as time went on, he realized that it was really important for his ability to get funding. And so, yeah, he had noble people there and visitors all the time. And there were some big parties. I mean, it was a beautiful space. It was kind of striking. He built it so that it was super impressive. He had designed, for example, I love this story. He had made the design of like the central staircase of the building to spiral up and then go up into this big observatory tower. And there were these, you know, along the spiral staircase, there were all of these, like you can imagine like draperies everywhere and paintings and books everywhere and devices and all kinds of weird knickknacks everywhere. And apparently he had built into the walls a series of bells that had these cords that he could pull. And so obviously there are lots of assistants that are living all around the place, but a lot of them were living in these little quarters that you couldn't see unless you knew exactly where to go. And so he'd ring a bell, he'd have guests, he'd have the guests come and they'd go up into the central tower and he would reach over and sort of unobtrusively grab a little a little cord, pull it, and some bell would go off down in one of the entryways or one of the living quarters downstairs. And he knew exactly which one was going to ring. And one of his assistants would have to come up. And the assistant would know to come up by some like backdoor method. And there was this little like entrance area. And so Tico would be talking uh, in low tones to his guests who would be very awed by looking, you know, it's nighttime and they're looking out there. And suddenly he'd turn and he'd say to nobody, there was nobody there. And he'd say, and then my assistant so-and-so would be here and he will tell us, you know, something else. And the assistant would walk out and say, yes, here I am. And it was shocking. Like people were, oh my gosh, how did you do that? And, you know, probably wearing like wizard robes or something. <laughs> yeah. would, you know, not even blink. He'd say, oh, it's, it's nothing. You know, this is just how I live. So yeah, lots of parties and lots of sort of almost magic. Two details that I think we should probably mention about the island. The pet moose. Yeah, there was some elk or moose. I, I read this as well. The he had one that would wander around the grounds. And then apparently, I, I think the idea is that the, the elk moose, he said elk, but I don't know, who knows what it was. It apparently just kind of had the run of the place and it would come in and out. And then he eventually decided to give it to another nobleman because the nobleman wanted to have a pet, pet moose. It's like, hey, you can have my moose. And so on the trip to deliver the moose to the other nobleman's place, apparently they stopped at another castle and the moose was let out to wander around, went and found a giant vat of beer and drank all the beer, got drunk, fell down some stairs and died. Yeah, drunk enough beer to kill a moose. And apparently the moose was into the beer. I mean, I, the assumption is that he liked beer. <laughs> the other thing is that there was, there was entertainment. I think that there was a, a, a dwarf, I believe, that was like a jester type thing. Yeah, I read that too, that his name was Jeffrey or something like that, or Jeff A. And yeah, he apparently was sort of a court jester. And he, you know, Tico had a lot of superstitions. And he apparently thought that the, 
the gestures, sometimes would say things that would predict the future. So sometimes he'd write down some of the ridiculous things the dwarf would say. It's this bizarre island, and but a very productive one. It does eventually come to an end. In 1588, Frederick dies. Yeah, there's this eight or nine year period where stuff's happening because of that. And Tico, you know, just to go into a couple of the things that were happening for Tico, he had gotten married, as we said, to a commoner, which meant that his children were commoners. And I think when he first got married, he didn't really care that much. But as time went on, he realized, hey, my kids aren't going to take over. They're not going to get my inheritance. And my wife is not going to be a, a noble person when I die, if I die first. And so he starts to pay more and more attention to trying to fix this. And when the king dies in 1588, it happens at a time that Tico's doing some work trying to get something legal about his wife and his kids so that they can be noble, which really wasn't a thing. It was going to have to be a big change for that to happen. So when the king dies, his son is 10 years old, too young to be the acting king. And so there's a set of regents who are put into power to help make decisions. And Tico's actually a part of that. But he's trying to get all these legal things done. And Tico, at this point, he's older and he's really not a very politic person. He kind of pisses people off. And as generous as the king was at all times, Tico just kept asking for more and more and not really being very polite about it. So sometime in the mid-1590s, as the new king is getting old enough to be crowned, Tico is given control of a particular estate. It's basically just so he can make more money. And this estate happens to have the chapel on it where the king was buried. So the king's buried in this chapel uh, or outside of it. And Tico is getting money from the chapel, but he's also charged with taking care of the, the chapel. And so Tico stupidly decides not to spend any money on keeping the chapel nice. I mean, the king's buried there, but he just lets it go into not ruins exactly, but apparently it needs a new roof, it's leaking. And the word gets out, this is the case, to a lot of noble people. And they're like, Tico, you really need to take care of this chapel. And Tico's like, no, I need to spend it on all of my fun toys. So eventually the young king confronts Tico because he goes to visit his dad's grave and he's embarrassed at how horrible the place is. He comes back and he's like, Tico, you better take care of this right away or else you're going to lose other stuff. And Tico, this is just an example of how kind of impolitic he is. He basically drags his feet and goes, well, okay, but can we spend less? How about a cheaper type of roof? And the king's like, fine, just do something. But these kinds of things start to build up. And by 1596 or whatever, Tico starts to realize the writing is on the wall, that he's not getting all the favoritism that he did before. And the new king is crowned. And basically, he's made enough enemies, Tico has, to know that he's not going to be getting all that great funding he was getting before. So he decides to leave, kind of in a huff. It takes a little bit of time. He eventually makes his way to Prague. Yeah, it does take a little bit of time, but he does. And again, in a huff. He's trying to be polite to the new king, but he's also basically saying, well, it's not really my fault. It's the whole sort of, you know, apology that isn't an apology. He goes to Prague and he ends up asking the Holy Roman Emperor for some money. And the Holy Roman Emperor says, yes, good idea, because you're famous and we'd really like to have you as our court astronomer. So he kind of gets reinstated. He's going to only be there for roughly two years, but 
perhaps the most important relationship he'll ever have in his life happens in this short time period. And that is that he meets a young German astrologer, astronomer, mathematician named Johannes Kepler. Yeah, Kepler is not famous at the time. I mean, he's now one of the sort of titans of the history of science, far more important in the history of science actually than Tycho if, when, when you think about his placement there. And Kepler was young and very smart, but I don't think that anybody really knew that at the time. And through a series of kind of random events in a way, he ends up working for Tycho there. And Tycho, he's only there for a couple of years, but Kepler becomes the steward of all of this data, that this raw data that Tycho had amassed over those 25 years at Uraniborg. And that data is what Kepler needed in order to really think hard about how the actual shape of the orbits of the planets really worked. And he came up, you know, after Tycho's death, he came up with the true notion that the orbits of the planets weren't circles, they're ellipses. And there is a clash between Kepler and Brahe. It's not exactly the easiest relationship. First of all, they contrast in a lot of ways. Brahe, the super rich guy, Kepler comes from meager means. Kepler, German, Brahe, Danish. And Kepler's much younger, as you said, than Brahe is. But perhaps most importantly, ideologically, Tycho Brahe is not on board with Copernicus. Tycho Brahe forms his own model of the universe, which is kind of in between Ptolemy, the old school geocentric view, and Copernicus, the heliocentric view. Yeah, Tycho had been thinking very hard over many decades about what the right model was for how the planets and the stars and everything, the moon, exist. And Copernicus, you're right, was this revolutionary who decided that the center of the universe, he said, was the sun and everything went around it. And Tycho was a great admirer of Copernicus. He rejected the idea that the earth moved. And, and I'll say it was on, I think, solid scientific grounds. He said that there's just no observable evidence that says that we're moving. We are just stuck here. We're not vibrating. We're not, you know, we don't see movement. And he even rejected the idea that we're rotating. He said, you know, on our axis, uh, he said that we're, we are solid here. And I gotta say, you know, I don't see us, it doesn't look like we're moving, but you're right. He was a great admirer of Copernicus and did realize that Copernicus was a genius in explaining how there's a geometric system that can explain so much. And so all he really did with Copernicus's system to change it was he basically just put his finger on the moving earth and said, no, 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 everything, everything moves around the earth in exactly the way Copernicus said it should have been. And yeah, Kepler doesn't believe that. But I think that Tycho... There's a part of the story that makes it sound sort of like Tycho was resistant to heliocentrism because of religion. I, I really think it, it seems like it was more about science. Yeah, it's so easy in retrospect to be like, oh, the guy was wrong. So clearly there was a huge blind spot or whatever. But exactly what you said, I mean, in terms of the data available, Tycho's version of things was the earth is in the center, the sun revolves around the earth, but everything other than the earth revolves around the sun. Pretty close, <laughs> you know, like not, not that bad. He actually had some interesting arguments about why, in terms of the data, it was more likely that the Earth was still rather than the sun. He said, there should be this parallax thing. If we're really moving around the sun and our orbit really is as big as we think it is, and he had measured the orbit, like the distance from the Earth to the sun, actually very inaccurately. He thought that it was much smaller than it was. But even at the small size that he thought that it was, it was big enough that this parallax thing 
he said, should have been observable with stars if we really were moving around. And he said, look, if we really are moving around, then the stars would have to be unimaginably far away and unimaginably large. And he said, that just doesn't seem likely. And he had all these crazy numbers and he said, look, these can't be right. And it turns out that actually those numbers are about right. I mean, on the scale of things, he's like, look, it would have been like billions of miles. It's like, yeah, it actually is billions of miles. Yeah, which is a hard thing to wrap your mind around, even when you know it's true at this point. It's crazy how far away and how big stars are. Sure, sure. So yes, he and Kepler didn't see eye to eye on that. I don't know that that was a big deal, but but they did not. So just to jump ahead, we'll talk about Tycho's death because he dies in 1601. But in the years after, Kepler and the fact that Kepler got a hold of Tycho's data is one of the most essential moments in the history of science. Because as you alluded to, Copernicus was right in that the sun is the center, but he believed that the planets revolved around the sun in circles, because circles, of course, are the beautiful shape, and that's what makes the most sense. Kepler has three laws of planetary motion that are very much still taught in science classes today, and the first one is that, no, it's not circular orbits, they're actually ellipses. They actually look a little more like ovals. Yeah, and there was lots of evidence in Tycho's data that said that it something else was going on in the circles. Uh, he worked very hard. Tycho did more than just observe. He had his own theories that were very mathy. And he had, in order to make his data make sense, he had to move circles around in ways where, you know, yeah, the Earth is at the center, but actually it's not the center of the circle, that these circles were going around with the centers in different spots, and he had to really adjust things a lot. And even then, a lot of the data didn't work. But Kepler's genius, in part, is that he realized that the shape was actually different than that. And that wouldn't have happened, probably, if he hadn't had such accurate data to match to his theories. So that all happens after Tycho's already dead. Tycho's death, which deserves discussion. The story that you wrote to me when you chose Tycho Brahe, I think one of the reasons why you chose him, I mean, obviously you chose him because it's a fascinating story in general, and he's an important figure in math and science, but he died most likely from, as you said, something urinary related. And the story that is, I think, just the most interesting is that he held it in for too long. Yeah, so my own personal history with like why I love Tycho Brahe is actually, it goes back to that professor I was talking about, James Vogel. In 1994, I took a course of his on cosmology and James Vogel was a young PhD at the time and he had studied a lot about Kepler apparently, but in this class, he told great stories. And my favorite one, and Professor Vogel really hammed it up, was about Tycho Brahe. And he told this story that I will tell to you. And actually, I've told it to you before, because I, <laughs> I know for sure that when you were in ninth grade, because I used to love to do this, I would find some excuse to tell the story to all of my classes. And you used to and tell a lot of different anecdotes as well. Was that influenced also by this professor? Partly. Yeah, partly. It's just fun. I, I love the history of math and science. And there's just some great characters and some funny stories. And this is absolutely one of them. So the story is that Tico was, uh, as we've said, he was always going out and socializing because he was an aristocrat. And he was at the time in Prague, 
1601. And this particular evening, he was going to a fancy dinner and there were noble people there. There was a duke there, I think. The social mores of the time said that you don't get up from the table until the, the host does. And so the host was eating and drinking and Tico was eating and drinking. And Professor Vocal said that Tico was actually very well known as being a big eater and a big drinker. I believe he said that he was actually a, a bit of a glutton and a very large man. So the story he told was that he's eating and he's drinking and he's throwing it down. He's having a great time. And he realizes, man, I got to go to the bathroom. I've really got to pee. But he's looking over and the host is going very slowly and enjoying his time. And he just keeps nibbling at his plate. And the time goes on and goes on. And Tico's sitting there crossing his eyes and crossing his legs and trying to put up with the increasing discomfort and hours go by and Tico Brahe, instead of getting up and breaking the decorum of the time, just lives with the pain and his bladder bursts and he dies. That was the story Professor Vogel told. And I always added for my ninth grade audience that when your parents tell you and you're in the car and you tell them, but I gotta go, mom, I'm gonna die. Please stop at the next rest stop. And your mom says, you know what, you're not gonna die. Then you get to say, Tico Brahe died, it can happen. So that was always the punchline. But it turns out that actually when Tico got home, he couldn't go something was really wrong. And so for the next eight or nine days, he was in bed in awful discomfort, apparently, and, uh, and just couldn't pee. And there was something going on that was triggered at this meal. And he ended up dying. My dad's a urologist, so I will confer with him <laughs> about the details of this. And I will get back All to right. you in terms of the accuracy. I'd like to know. I'd like to know. <laughs> there were also theories... You mentioned before that he was dug up again in the early 1900s and then again, actually about like 10 years ago or so. And the mercury poisoning possibly, maybe from the alchemy. Of course, people like also throwing in, maybe it was murder and try to find people to pin it on. One theory is that Kepler did it to get his data. That's, you know, bunk. But in general, something urinary is the idea here. Yeah, apparently there were a bunch of theories. Um, one was that maybe the new king of Denmark had him killed because maybe Tico was having an affair with the king's mom. I don't know if that was you know a real thing or not, but that was a theory. As you said, it might have been that he was murdered by another scientist. It could have been several things people thought over the years, but they dug him up in 2010 or 2011 or something like that and did some tests and figured out, nah, he died because he didn't pee. All right. So that is the story of Tico Brahe, one of the most colorful characters in the history of science and one of the most influential ones. Mr. Worrell, Charles, yeah, Mr. Worrell, I don't know. I can't thank you enough for sharing your knowledge of him and also your passion for the subject. Benji, it's been such fun. Thank you so much. Thank you.